So today we're going to talk about our second book in the Books Are Good Actually podcast history, and it is a people's history in the United States. Before we go into the book, I just wanted to mention that our format for deciding these books was a, a randomly generated list between uh, myself and Angela's book list that was then put into a 37-book bracket, and then we had the books battle to determine which were the first three that we were going to read. Right, and it was a battle of coin flips. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of coin flips, some that were discarded or cocked, uh, that's lots of coin flips. Yeah, we unfortunately couldn't coax the books into fighting for themselves. Maybe uh, next time we, we figure out what we're reading, they'll, yeah. they'll want to fight for us. Yes. Of course. And so we're reading A People's History of the United States. Previously, we recorded an episode. It covered about 200 pages of this 650-page book, and we were going chapter by chapter, which from a, say, an educational perspective might have been fine, but it was rather dry and also didn't necessarily capture the, the spirit of the book as well as we could have. Right. And with the book, there's a lot of, there's definitely a narrative beat, even though there's no, you know, a main character or a villain. Well, I guess the villain is the United States government. Absolutely. the point is that chapter by chapter, it was getting very tedious, and we're not an educational podcast. Uh, We're also not historians. We're not any of most of what the books we're going to talk about are. So, made no, it it just was bad listening experience. So, uh, today we're going to do another try at People's History of the United States. We're going to go through five periods, pre-1776 through to some of the revolution, revolution to the Civil War, Civil War to World War One, World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, and then World War Two to today. And we'll finish with a discussion of critiques of both our own and other people's, and hopefully you'll enjoy. Yep. All right, jumping right in to the first part, pre-revolutionary war. There are some passages that definitely struck out to me was about the slave ships and specifically also the laws that were placed for the poor slaves and the poor whites or the indentured servants because they figured out, oh, if they start talking together and realize they both have the same shit, they're going to eventually rebel and, you know, take over the land or whatever. Absolutely. And so that was... What period pre seventy six was that from? Was that this was early seventeen hundred? Uh this was pretty much in the sixteen thirty nine, sixteen forties. So pretty much the entire time from the colonies first becoming a thing and we're absolutely glossing over Columbus and his genocides, but those were there in the book. There has been attempts by uh, whites and blacks of the lower class to band together and overthrow their, their masters. Right. And they had to essentially just enact laws so that they never talk with each other. They never uh, occupy the same space. They definitely didn't want them to fuck. Uh, they definitely, with women especially, they controlled if they had kids ever. And they're like, well, if they have kids, they can't work. That's not money in my pockets. So we're going to nip that shit in the bud. And it's interesting over the years. So the laws they put in place, and then these indentured servants, also when they work off their debts, 
they still have to go back to work for the same people because they never earn enough money to actually gain land. And the thought of the American dream, not even the American dream, just, ah, you can work off your debts and then you can own a piece of property and then you can eventually have your own farm, that never really was a viable thing. Yeah, it's just never was a thing, period. Mm -hmm. Like, there may be, like, one or two people, but if you consider how many indentured servants there are... Always outliers. Yes. There's always exceptions to the rule. Right. But definitely uh, stratification of the classes and the races through codified legal language designed to get people fighting against each other rather than fighting against the people who owned all the land right. and owned control of the colonial governments. I picked out a passage regarding the transportation to the New World. This was from a German man traveling to the United States in 1750. He said, During the journey, the ship is full of pitiful distress, smells, fumes, horrors, vomiting, various kinds of seasicknesses, diseases all over the place, hunger, thirst. These trips were intended to be eight weeks, but they often stretched to 14 or 16 weeks. And he records that on board our ship on a day on which we had a great storm, a woman was about to give birth, and she's failing to give birth. So rather than help this woman, they throw her overboard. They throw a pregnant woman into the sea. This was probably pretty common. Just pitching suffering people into the sea, pitching the dead into the sea, having masses of people die coming across. These And these were the conditions for indentured servants and regular travelers, let alone the conditions for slaves. Yeah, and there's also uh, a quick note, cannibalism. So that was always fun. Oh, I don't yeah. know how, so I'm just thinking, you, you get to the New World, and then you're like, yes, I like to eat, eat someone, right? And everyone knows about it, probably. Like, someone, or I guess you could just lie, like, yo, they just fell overboard, or they died, and we just threw into the sea. I'd say it's probably uh, more likely that they collectively justified it, and we're like, well, yeah, you were starving, they were dead, you ate them. Yeah. I did that two years ago. (laughs) (laughs) When I came over. When I came over. I'm a good person now. God-fearing. So also, the lead-up to the Revolutionary War, they had, so the thing is, a lot of colonists, there was a lot of revolts, there was a lot of demonstrations, a lot of meetings, breaking up of those meetings, everyone was not, like, happy about the New World, because a lot of them were in the, still in the same place as it was in the Old World. Oftentimes worse. Oftentimes worse, right. So, I picked out in, on page uh, 59, which is beginning of Tyranny is Tyranny, the, pretty much the richest folks had to figure out how to kind of unite people in a very superficial way, which is state building. You can kind of see that too with a lot of, I, I'm going to talk about my ass a little bit, but a lot of, uh, you know, medieval wars, right? Like they kind of had to have a way for people to fight for them. Like, oh, it's for king and country. That was a reason to fight. And that's how they got warriors besides the prestige, because there is kind of a way to get up in a world if you're a knight or a you know, mercenary or whatever. Absolutely. Also, the aspect of they believe in God law. Right. There is also that. There is also the whole, like, God's on my side, so I'm right, and this is my calling. There is that. And so, essentially, the you know, rich farmers and other merchant class and other folks pretty much were like, okay, we need to figure out how to, one, make more money and not pay money back to our old kings. We need to become the new kings and have our little serfdom here without 
also making sh- like make sure we don't die, but making everyone else do all the hard work for us. And a big part of that was how they wrote the Constitution. The passage I picked out regarding that uh, is from a discussion of Charles Beard, who is a historian that has written extensively on uh, the Constitution, and in his writings called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, he points out that the majority of the signers were landowners, lawyers, they loaned money at interest, they controlled manufacturing and shipping, and through the Constitution they codified their ownership of these into the legal structure of their new government. And it is through that that they cemented their control in place of the the kings that existed and controlled it before that. So, people's history, which is interesting to me, is that it doesn't go into uh, the wars Mm -hmm. um, that the United States participated in. It really... It's not battle by battle. Yeah, it's not battle by battle. It's just like, okay, the war happened. This is a result. And these are the people who were upset about it. Right. These were the treacheries that the United States government perpetuated. Right. So, pretty much, it's what the revolution were like, okay, it happened, and this is the outcome of it. Then we kind of go into history after that. So, next up is we're going to discuss from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War. And before we um, hop into that, I, I do want to mention, in all of these, like, the narrative theme that, that Zinn has is one of pointing out treachery, pointing out capitalism, pointing out exploitation, and discussing the lesser-known beats of history, all of the all of the riots, all of the uprisings. He has a very anti-capitalist, anti-authoritarian, anti-war narrative that he is infusing all of these with. So he does have his own take on all of this. It is not a, there's no such thing as a, a clinical review of history, right. a, a neutral re- review of history, but he provides one of the few mainstream anti-capitalist takes on American history that is well-known. All right, so after the Revolutionary War, uh, we have, you know, just take it away, Jimmy. Sure. Uh, so I've got the uh, first passage that we wanted to point out. Um, and once again, throughout this period, uh, Zinn is talking about how people fought back, how the system was uh, designed to uh, take your rights away and give them to capitalists. And the, the first one that we're pointing out here is that the Sedition Act, which was passed in 1798 under John Adams, and basically the purpose of the Sedition Act was to immediately infringe upon your First Amendment rights, um, made it a crime to say or write anything false, scandalous, and malicious against the government, Congress, or the President, with intent to defame, bring them into disrepute, or excise popular hatred against them. So, from the beginning, with the laws that we have, they have been structured to take your rights away. Right. And also, we've had, after the war, women were like, oh, alright, we're free, we can, how about our rights? Our rights to vote? Absolutely. Our rights to own property? And that just made it got shut down. Like, that's cute. Women, like, your sphere is the household, but 
the thing is, like, when the colonists came over, everyone had to work to, like, do discoveries. It wasn't like, well, you get to sit back at the camp. It's like, no, if your husband died, you're the one to keep going forward. There was nobody else to help you besides yourself. And even if your husband was alive, there was still so much work that had to be done. Right. Both pre-revolution and post-revolution just to survive. Um, this is an aside, but uh, from the dollop episode on Andrew Jackson, um, one of the things that was never really mentioned regarding Andrew Jackson during this period, because he was pretty active right. through this period, uh, is just how sick he was all the time and how much he was constantly shitting. <laughs> um, so at one point, he is um, marching off to war think, as part of the War of 1812, which isn't really covered in this book. Actually, not think that. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's, not. It's sort of, like, it may have been mentioned, but it's not, like, focused on, which, okay. But um, he's portrayed in um, somebody's memoir or some writing as uh, leaned over on his horse and just shitting. So he's basically passed out as they're on the road to New Orleans as part of the War of 1812, just shitting the whole time. Gosh. And... Educational podcasts. Yeah. Welcome back. Yep. And also, when we get to the Mexican War, there's a lot of just people, mostly casualties, was just from just shitting yourself to death. Yep. Yep. (laughs) So so many camps of, of sick people. Yep. Uh, wounded people all over the place, obviously, from, like, cannonball fire and musket fire, but so many people shit themselves to death. Yep. Anyway, back to women's rights. Uh, they, so there's a lot of um, organizations that actually have had a lot of conventions, and there's this one passage in, on page 122 that is, a woman is, no, is a nobody, a wife is everything, which... Pretty much, it kind of says sums up the sum, feeling. Yeah, of sums up the feeling, right? And there's also a big movement on making sure that the clothing of women actually changed because at the time it was very restrictive for all the work that they're supposed to do. They couldn't actually go do the work. Uh, pants became or bloomers were kind of a thing. Named after someone. Named after someone which I could not find. I think Emily Bloomer. Emily Bloomer, yeah. And I remember a in right in high school and middle school, there was a crash with, like, the uh, riverboats like, caught on fire, and, like, when the women jumped off, they just drowned because of all their clothing, just Mm -hmm. sunk them immediately. And that was, like, for a lot of people, oh, yeah, we should probably not do that. (laughs) Like, it should not be a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, with these types of conventions, they kind of were, like, hot and cold with allowing free black women being a part of it, and that's... at the point where, like, one of them, Sojourner Truth, yes. uh, steps up and um, basically rattles off all of the hard labor that she's had to do, the suffering that she's experienced, and finishes, like, each of these um, segments with, and ain't I a woman? Um, so even, like, well-known, uh, I assume well-known at the time, abolitionists, um, we're, we're still struggling in, in this otherwise white woman's movement. Right. And it's one of those things where it's, throughout the book, you can kind of see that 
when, especially later on when they had unions, there was always talk about, okay, should, should we let the black people in here? And then that just backfires horribly. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes sometimes let them in. Yeah. But it's definitely uh, where, if you're not all together, the movement kind of sort of falls apart. Mm-hmm. Unless you have money, yeah. then that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. So after the women's movement, um, I had a passage on the treatment of Native Americans during this time. And uh, what I picked out was, shoot, we're going to have to get that. Okay. We're doing so well. Doing so well. Um, continuing from the women's movement, um, we have a discussion of the treatment of Native Americans, which was present in the book pre-76, but it was really during this period that the suffering amped up, um, because in the 1820s and 1830s, we see a lot of consolidation of and creation of the federal and state governments, and these governments then turned around and attacked Native Americans so that white people could expand. And Jackson, in 1828, had the Indian Removal Bill come before Congress, and it was called the leading measure of its time, and the greatest question that ever came before Congress, except for matters of war and peace. Both Democrats and Whigs were pretty much on board, across the board. They had different reasons for wanting it. Uh, Jackson himself was virulently anti-Indian, because of both his experiences uh, growing up on the frontier, as well as his experiences in various wars. And it proceeded to lead to a whole bunch of screwing over Native tribes over and over and over again. Uh, There is not a treaty that we have not gone back on. Right. Um, I think in this chapter, too, there was mention of concerns of if they expanded more, that means slavery also expands more. I believe that was something that's a, that was a concern for some people who did not really wanted to expand more. It was, that was the main point. They kind of didn't really mention or it wasn't obvious that they cared about, like, oh, we're fucking over India, you know, the Native Americans, or like, we're not honoring our treaty. And um, it was definitely considered like a release valve for the uh, labor discontent that existed in the coastal areas at the time in these colonies. Being able to push Native Americans out meant that uh, discontent whites could go to the frontier and not cause trouble for landowners and for the government and for yeah, and also if you consider uh, for black slaves, they lose an ally because some slaves will run away and they would hide into these different tribes. Some of them are like, some of the tribes were okay, okay, you know, you can work and then once you're done, you can stay along with us. So there's actually different areas where they had their own little villages and stuff like that and they were incorporated into the tribe. So Seminoles were the biggest about that. Right. Felt like you were continuing this. No, I thought it was it. (laughs) And uh, we 
Did you have? So moving on into the Mexican-American War, this is a war that the United States started because we, similar to what was going on with the Indians, we wanted more land. We wanted land to put people on, and Mexico controlled Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, New Mexico, Kansas area. Yeah. That huge, it was a huge swath of South and Midwest land, as we would think about it now. Um, also, a lot of California. Right. And I think also this was just after they gained independence from Spain. About 20 years. So, as a, as a government, we've been around for 40 to 50 years at this point, and they've been around 20. Um, and so we deliberately marched people into Mexican territory and then um, basically ginned up a reason to go to war with Mexico. And as we mentioned earlier, it's mostly people shitting themselves to death. Yep. Uh, but uh, a good amount of uh, violence and destruction of property and uh, sexual assault and rapes. And um, at the end of it all, uh, this war that we went into with false purposes and uh, brought suffering to, I'm sure, dozens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, Mexico surrenders and... There was a call among Americans to take all of Mexico, but the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, signed February 1848, only took half of Mexico. The Texas border was set up at the Rio Grande, New Mexico and California were ceded as well, and the United States paid $15 million. Could you imagine buying all of Texas, Colorado, New Mexico, California, Oklahoma, Arizona, for $15 million. Right. It's pretty insane how much of a deal we got. I, I would just call it theft. I don't know that that's I a guess, deal. Yeah, I guess it's more of a theft, right? Because essentially they kind of marched in on a nation that was rebuilding. Mm-hmm. And they also pretty much lied to the soldiers who were like our own soldiers mm-hmm. because they told them, hey, if you do this, we'll give you some fucking land. Gonna get a ton of land. Get a ton of land. We're gonna get, we're, like, we're, we're taking this land and you're gonna get a piece. And then a bunch of speculators came in, bought up all the land, and then the soldiers were like, fuck, I didn't get paid at all during this entire time. And like, there was a lot of desert, like, deserters and stuff like that. Once they got closer, and, you know, seeing your friends shit, your, shit themselves to death probably is like, well, I want to just go home, so Especially bye. for a war that feels unjust to you as someone on the ground. Right. So, the, the veterans get home, and the speculators are there, and they're like, wow, I have no fucking money, the army's not going to give me money, and I'm going to sell this land, like a fuck ton of land, for like 50, 50 bucks. Do- like 50 bucks. Because they have a kid and, like, a wife, and they're just shit out of luck. So, once again, the U.S. government taking care of their veterans is uh, pretty much on... Priority number one. Yeah, priority number one. Pretty much uh, on brand, as mm-hmm. the kids say. Mm-hmm. And uh, moving from the Mexican-American War, we go into America's favorite war, uh, the one that we know the most about. 
it's definitely World War II. No, it's not. It's Civil War. Right. And so the Civil War is interesting in how, depending on where you are in school and other fun stuff, it's either kind of like Lincoln's the savior, that's me, or the slaves weren't really going to leave slavery, they were very happy, they were the happy slaves, and or they, it was for states' rights. But it, the whole thing was about uh, slavery. So let's Either an economic perspective on slavery or not wanting to have slavery. Right. And the thing is, like with Lincoln, he kind of was willing to let things slide for mm-hmm. a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like black slaves were, like, his constituency. He has no one to, like, talk, like, no one to bat against him except for abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Even though some of them abolitionists were kind of racist in some ways. They, they had like, a very interesting... Paternalism. Yeah, parallelism, for sure. A lot of them was like, oh, we'll just let them go and we'll just take them back home. Which makes... Oh, also, yeah. No sense. Because at this point, several generations have gone by. A lot of these families have broken up. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And it's essentially, uh, removal is genocide. Right. And, um, Lincoln would, when he was stumbling to become president, he would, in cities, give a friendly to slavery speech. No, excuse me. Um, friendly to anti-slavery. Right. Friendly to abolitionist speech. And then in rural areas, He'd be like, I don't care about slavery. Like, you guys can keep your slaves. Yeah. Um, and post-election into the Civil War itself, um, the thing that everyone remembers Lincoln for the most is the Eman- Emancipation Proclamation, right? And what people don't remember is that the Emancipation Proclamation was announced and did not go into effect for four months because as part of that announcement, Lincoln said that, quote, that on the first day of January, A.D. 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state, part of the state, I read that wrong, okay. So as part of announcing the Emancipation Proclamation in September, Lincoln issued his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which was a military move, and was intended to give the South four months to stop rebelling, threatening to emancipate their slaves if they continued to fight, and promised to leave slavery untouched, in states that returned to the North. So if you came back into the Union within September, October, November, and December of 1862, you could keep your slaves. So, we as the United States could have continued to have slavery post-Civil War if the war had ended with all of the slave states returning to the Union. I wonder why, I don't know if it was, maybe it was in the book, I don't recall if why the reason they didn't, and I, maybe it's uh, reasons. Mix of pride. Probably. Mix of um, the, the feel of a uh, cultural difference, probably. Mix of, well, can we really trust them to allow us to keep slavery if we're already uh, sort of fighting over slavery? Right. Or our right to the, these economic modes and to not have to deal with northern tariffs in the way that the North wants to run the economy. So, probably a mix of all that. Okay. Yeah. And so, the Civil War happens. 
lot of people die, and Emancipation Proclamation happens, and a lot of slaves were like, who I'm free, what the fuck does that give me, essentially? Because they have no land, they have no names, essentially, mm-hmm. they're like an unperson, and they can't get, like, they can't move off the land that they've been on for so long. The majority of the farmers, or the farms continued to be owned by the people who previously owned them. They worked as tenant farmers, often for near slavery right. amounts of money. And Like, some masters did get killed and stuff like that, but the majority of the time they just kept working on the, the farms that they've already been on. And I... Like, the, the book doesn't mention, like, 40 acres and a mule, like, that whole thing. Um, which, what, like, once again, it doesn't really, that didn't help them. Yeah, either. So, yeah. but yeah. So most of that land was already purchased by railroad. Right, and most of, most of the land was already taken up by speculators, by other folks. You know, the state can just say, well, you can't own that land. Like, they can say what the fuck they want mm-hmm. at that point. It's not like they can, like, these free slaves could get a lawyer, right? Yeah. Right. Alright, so, we're going to continue on, uh, so after the Civil War, into World War One, and this is going to be a lot more of labor movements and unions that come, especially after the Industrial Revolution, and how folks, how the clock, like, that starts becoming a very big deal in the United States. Mm-hmm. So post-Civil War, and sort of during the Civil War as well, because there were definitely labor riots during the Civil War in the North, um, and if I remember correctly, the South, um, but post-Civil War, we saw a lot of labor movements, rights movements, um, political uh, shifts, and a lot of this was during the period where revolutionaries in the United States and revolutionaries in Europe were active. Marx and Engels had corresponded with Lincoln both pre and during his presidency. There were socialists in the United States and anarchists in the United States pre-Civil War as well as post-Civil War working to try and get uh, the labor and the races working together to overthrow capitalism. And one of the uh, things that jumped out from the other Civil War, which is the name of the chapter, post the Civil War chapter, was the law of eminent domain starting to be used. And um, one of the prominent uses for this was to take farmers' land and give it to canal companies or railroad companies as subsidies. Uh, Often this land was then flooded and made unusable for anyone um, as part of creating these canals for businesses to traverse across or railroads to traverse across. Right. So pretty much going off from that, there was also a little bit of automation that was starting to come into play. I might be speaking a little bit, but there was definitely a lot of unions that popped up that were initially only for men, but as women became workers in different factories, like sewing, uh, umbrella making, 
like laundry, food, talk about the conditions, and also these people, a lot of folks live in like these dormitories that they also have to pay for and pay for the food that comes from the wages. So that we come also yeah, scrub. Yeah. So essentially, there's a big push of you guys. We they are workday. Or actually, almost sixteen hours. Like, please give us twelve hour workdays. And then eventually got pushed to eight hour workdays. There was a lot of uh, strikes about that. A lot of people died over that. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of folks who got killed by the National Guard or local police. Generally, they just strike started. breakers hired by the companies. Right, the strike breakers. Uh, generally, the strike breakers are generally black people because the these unions or other recent immigrants. Yeah, or other recent immigrants. Usually, these unions are very selective, and this kind of blows up in their face when they have these strikes because now no, now they can just bring in other people, and it becomes kind of a racial issue that instead of a class issue. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of straight breakers are generally, you know, as we said, black or another race. They bring them in. And also, a lot of folks who were, like, part of not the majority of these unions, it's really hard to get them part of it if the unions don't welcome them. So, they're like, okay, that's kind of nice, but you don't welcome me into your uh, meetings. You say, make your own union. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to care about these issues. I'm probably still getting paid less than what you're making even right now. But chances are this is work that I didn't have before. Um, so I'm shooting you in the foot. I'm shooting me in the foot. But we're, the person pulling the trigger is still the capitalist. Right. So pretty much a lead up to the Bicentennial. There is a German Socialist and Working Men's White Party in Chicago. And part of it was they have a Declaration of Independence, and I want to read a passage from it. Um, it has therefore prevented mankind from fulfilling their natural destinies on earth, crushed down ambition, prevented marriages, or caused false and unnatural ones, has shortened human life, destroyed morals and fostered crime, corrupted judges, ministers, and statesmen, shattered confidence, love, and honor among men, and made life a selfish, merciless struggle for existence instead of a noble and generous struggle for perfection, in which equal advantages should be given to all, the human lives relieved from an unnatural and degrading competition for bread. Yeah. <laughs> so, moving on, the so there was a lot of competition for work that just was not going to like be there. A lot of strike breaking. A lot of people just getting straight up shot. First three strikes. Uh, these also a lot of strikes didn't actually produce anything. Most of the times they would. Figure out who their leaders are, blacklist them, and then fire them. Wouldn't recognize the union, might give like a concession, but then otherwise, it, very little was won, usually. And uh, it was during this time that we also saw a lot of consolidation of companies and a lot of use of the law to uh, defend the rights of these companies to do all of these things. So we, we mentioned eminent domain earlier. But in 1877, the Supreme Court decision, Mann versus Illinois, approved state laws regulating the prices to farmers for the use of grain elevators. And the grain elevator company argued that it was a person being deprived of property, thus violating the 14th Amendment's declaration 
nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. The Supreme Court disagreed, saying that grain elevators were simply not private property when invested with public interest and so could be regulated. So there was the first attempt by a corporation to declare themselves as people, which had our modern day Supreme Court from a decade ago existed back then. Whew. Corporations would have been people, and that would have gotten overturned. Uh, so, it, good thing they weren't, but at the same time, like, maybe they would have had some good decisions uh, in this period that otherwise wouldn't have gone. Who knows? Who knows? Right. But, um, saw a lot of consolidation, a lot of automation, and this was happening to both the farmers as well as the laborers in cities and factories. Uh, we saw the ability for uh, cotton growing and corn growing and wheat growing go from a few million pounds a year to tens and twenty of millions of pounds a year with a reduction in the number of people who were needed to work, which both led to more people going to cities and less people being available to participate in the creation of farmers' unions or participate in farmer strikes. Though we did see quite a bit of that. Yeah. So, also during this time is, as we said, consolidation of a lot of companies. We've also had the Robin Barron era, where a lot of these railroad companies would try to say, hey, we're going to build this railroad. Everything's cool. And if you give us this land, we'll give you some stock. Oh, this was to who again? Like, the government. Mm. Uh, yeah, so this yeah. was like members of Congress, right. state governments, governors, like rolling up being like, hey, you want some stock? Right, and this is to prevent investigation of their treatment of their workers. I mean, granted, they probably didn't care all that much, but kind of also to prevent investigation of what they're actually doing mm -hmm. out there. Because a number of these companies would blow up a few years down the line and just not exist. Right. Uh, this is also the case for, this is like the Rockefellers and J.P. Morgan, a lot of steel, uh, once they figure out a process for steel, the output of steel definitely ratcheted up, which made them essentially billionaires. And um, this is like J.P. Morgan during the Civil War, he would buy the, these rifles very cheap, and they were not good rifles. He sold them to the soldiers for like three fifty. Like he got them for like about, well actually no, he got them for three fifty, but he sold them for $22, but they were pretty much really shitty and blew off soldiers' thumbs. So you can kind of tell how <laughs> that is how people decided to treat other profit. human beings yeah. and make a profit. And if I remember correctly, the government um, determined that as fulfilling the contract, he had done his, and his company had done the right thing in providing rifles. There was no requirement that the rifles not blow your hand off. Right. And I kind of think of, too, like, when I was reading these chapters of, like, those, uh, 
you're not really old movies, but movies are set during this time period, and, like, the orphan kid, and it's all, like, cute, like, oh, it's an orphan kid, wow, wow, golly gee, like, actually, like, uh, The Christmas Story, or, fuck, Ebenezer Scrooge, that mm-hmm. fucking mm-hmm. dislike, ah, oh, that's, period, that's in London, I don't know, yeah. fucking, the whole point is, like, it seems, like, cute, and you realize, like, no, those, they probably never actually eat that yeah. well, ever. Yeah. <laughs> And they try to dress it up like, ah, he was so nice, and it's all great. They had a nice Christmas dinner, but probably starved the rest of the fucking year. Also, this is a single family. Right. This is a single family in a city full of people who are barely eating. Right. And shitting themselves all the time. (laughs) Shitting themselves. And during this time, we saw a lot of movement in... Uh, labor organizers in the Socialist Party, in um, anarchist and communist thinking. And one of the people that came out of this time was Eugene Debs. And Debs was uh, part of a railroad company in the 1890s. And as uh, part of his work there, he befriended uh, some people, and one of them was killed by a train running him over. He fell under the train and got cut in half, basically. And uh, as a part of that, um, he left the railroad, but then later came back and uh, wrote that uh, Debs opposed them and argued that there was no necessary conflict between capital and labor. So even at that point in his life, losing a friend to capitalism and the the wheels of corruption and the wheels of capitalism. Um, He he had not yet woken to the fact that state didn't care about him, company didn't care about him, but soon he did. And as a part of uh, the economic crisis in 1893, um, he unionized uh, as part of uh, an effort um, to control the railroad company that he was part of. And from there, there was a, a series of strikes called the Pullman Strikes, which resulted in railroad cars just sitting all over the country. Railroad uh, engineers and workers would refuse to move Pullman cars which backed up other trains, and this in turn resulted in federal troops being brought out to attack strikers in Chicago, and resulted in Debs going to jail as part of that organizing. And uh, he was in jail for two years during this period. Uh, Part of the court case was over whether he was a socialist or not, to which he denied he was a socialist in court. But during the six months in prison, he studied socialism and spoke with fellow prisoners who were socialists. And through going into prison, the state turned a union worker, someone who unionized, to a socialist. And he became one of the uh, largest organizers of the time, eventually went on to run for president a few times, and garnered some of the best third-party results that 
uh, have ever been seen. So, you're probably thinking, well, there's all this, you know, chaos going on. How can we, like, how can we control the people? And besides, you know, shooting at them, beating the fuck out of them, throwing them to prison, there was also a man named Russell Conwell. And he went around, he wrote a book called Acres of Diamonds. And he read this to five, like over 5,000 times to audience across the country. And his message was, anyone could get rich if he tried hard enough and that everywhere, uh, blah, 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 tried hard enough, that everywhere, if people looked close enough, were acres of diamonds. So essentially, he... Bootstraps. Bootstraps, right. Grab your bootstraps, they're real easy. Right, so, uh, part of the book was, he said, I sympathize with the poor, but the number of poor who are to be sympathized with is very small. To sympathize with the man whom God has punished for his sins is to do wrong. Let us remember, there is not a poor person in the United States who is not made poor by his own shortcomings. So, it's your fault. Also, God wants you to be this way. And if you got rich, God also wants you to be this way. This is the start of the mega churches. This is the start of terrifying nonsense. Right. And also, this kind of start, like, kicked off, like, okay, you know, we can... We teach the middlemen, like the middle class, like doctors and lawyers, that they should respect authority, then they'll probably make schools and stuff to teach their children to respect authority. And the whole point is, like, I guess, um, on page 263, there's a passage that, in the meantime, the spread of public school education enabled the learning of writing, reading, and arithmetic for a whole generation of workers, skilled and semi-skilled, who would be deliberate labor force of the new industrial age. It's important that these people learn obedience to authority. And also it's interesting because they didn't when we were children we had to push to the flag, uh, they didn't really have to do that. But that was after yeah. the 1950s. So. Yeah. Gotta uh, got instill that uh, anti-communism in you. Um, and during this period uh, as well, uh, there was there were Still a couple small wars or uh, military actions. But the largest of those was the Spanish-American War. So not the Mexican-American War, but the Spanish-American War, which is where we, for a period of time, Cuban revolutionaries were trying to overthrow a Spanish rule in Cuba. And uh, businesses in the United States saw this as an opportunity to have another nearby point of sale, to offload their products, get natural resources for the cheap. And um, so they drummed up together with the government the, the will to, quote, help the revolutionaries. Um, though, as part of helping the revolutionaries, we passed something called the PLAT Act, P-L-A-T-T. And... Um, the Plan Act essentially said that we had the right to interfere in Cuban uh, events if need be to protect their democracy. And, of course, we weren't going to protect their democracy. We were protecting our business interests. Right. But uh, as a part of going to war 
against the Spanish in Cuba, uh, one of the things that we did was we sent uh, the people helping to fight the Spanish, I say helping, but people fighting the Spanish on our side, uh, 500,000 pounds of food, meat, that had been rejected six months prior in England for being too old, too spoiled. So let that sit for another six months and then try and eat it. it many of the cases uh, exploded um, and were putting off an effervescent putrid contents. Um, and so many people uh, died from eating this spoiled rotten meat. Um, there were 5,000 non-combatant deaths. We have no idea how many of those were due to me, but probably a lot. Probably a lot. At the same time that we were poisoning our own troops, um, we were poisoning the potential for real Cuban self-governance because as part of the winning over Spain in Cuba, we put in place the same governing bodies and the same people who were already ruling over Cuba because we were afraid of essentially another Haiti. The majority of revolutionaries in Cuba were uh, black and we did not, as a part of seeing what had happened in Haiti with the black revolution against uh, their French colonial rulers, want that to occur in Cuba. So we put it into place, the Spanish rulers who had been there. So essentially there was no change. And when there was change, there was not the change that was wanted, there was not the change that was fought for. Right. So essentially, uh, lead up to World War One, we had a lot of labor unit, uh, unions, a, lot, a pretty sizable amount of socialist uh, parties working uh, not only in a national level, but on a state level. Like, a lot of socials actually got into um, several parts of the government, like local government, which was which is interesting. Uh, but it's... Even the fervor against socialism currently. Right. And so Emma Goldman has been very active uh, throughout this time. She eventually got jailed, of course, because striking always just go to jail. And also, I think the Sedition Act was still probably in place, so mm -hmm. probably use that as a way to uh, draw up charges. And so you got some folks kind of calmed out, but things were, like, things were okay, but not great in terms of, like, the government, right? They're like, okay, you know, we have these strikes. Uh, we have this war we figured out how to suppress Cuba, now we, we're good, we have another, you know, piece of land to control, and... During this, like, during the capture of Cuba, it was also, we took control of Puerto Rico, we took control of Hawaii. Right. So, like, we were taking control of other people's land, even outside of the purview of the continental United States at this point. Right. And uh, so, essentially, we also had a lot of officials felt like there was a lot of energy that we need to channel into something. 
And when all these people are striking for rights. All these people are striking for rights. No one has fucking money. Things aren't, like, uh, how do you, how do you do that? And the answer is war. You need to put mm-hmm. um, the effort and energy into something. Mm-hmm. And World War One, uh, will kind of start here, but World War One essentially, like, we weren't going to get into at all. And I think we had, like, a law, or... Can I interject yes. with one last thing from the labor period? And no! Before yeah, you can do Okay, so, um, as part of a strike that the Wobblies, the IWW, organized, there was, in uh, Lawrence, New York, a series of textile mills that went on strike. And they had a pretty successful strike for um, a couple months. Other factories and unions were supporting them, sending them food, sending them wages to help keep them going. And at one point, they realized, hey, we're kind of running out of food. We want to keep the strike going. We've got all these kids that we need to feed. Let's organize for people in other towns to put our kids up for a period of time so that we can keep the strike going, they can keep eating. It was determined by the state, however, that that would be child endangerment to remove their children from the situation in which they cannot eat to be with people that they can live with and eat with. And the union went through with it anyway. So they sent off a couple of trains of children, and those went off without a hitch. But at the third attempt to send off these children, quote, a week after, uh, excuse me, when the time approached to depart, the children arranged in a long line, two by two in orderly procession, with their parents near at hand, and were about to make their way to the trains when police closed in on us with their clubs, beating left and right with no thought of the children, who were in the most desperate danger of being trampled to death. The mothers and children were thus hurled in a mass and bodily dragged to a military truck, and even then clubbed, irrespective of the cries of the panic-stricken women and children. Uh, one pregnant woman was carried unconscious to a hospital and gave birth to a dead child as part of that. Uh, so, for being concerned about the welfare right. of these children, they sure do uh, not seem concerned about the welfare of these children if they're willing to um, beat them. Right. And also, another note I forgot. Uh, during about, let's see, 1890, 1889, 1899 even, uh, the United States decided to capture, uh, this is pretty ongoing thing with Spain, to get involved with the Filipinos in like, the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And Oh, it was a terrible war. Yeah, and I remember I did a paper on the Philippines, like just uh, the history, and I think uh, Indonesia, and essentially a lot of folks just deserted that war too, because especially a lot of uh, black soldiers, they were of course trying to get, you know, gain a better life. They were like, why am I killing people who are pretty much in the exact situation that I am? And they identified, and so a lot of folks just, even uh, like white folks, 
were like, this is a fucked up war, I should not, you shouldn't be here. Um, however, uh, they went through and, you know, they got what they wanted. They took the over the Philippines and put uh, military base there. Yep. Yep. Also during this time, um, there were things like rules for female teachers. Um, so these rules, uh, the school board in one town of Massachusetts provided were don't get married, don't leave town at any time without permission of the school board, don't keep company with men, be home between the hours of 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. because they're going to check up on you, do not loiter downtown in ice cream stores. Those fucking ice cream stores, man, they will get you fucked up. Well, this is also the period where medicine was being dispensed from soda fountains and ice cream stores. And some of that medicine was definitely morphine. And probably cocaine. Yeah. Good times. Um, do not loiter downtown. Uh, do not smoke. Do not get into a carriage with any man except your father or brother. So no uncles. No nephews, no grandfathers, <laughs> no cousins. You, it, just your father or your brother. If any of those other men are there, you cannot also get it. It's literally just your father and your brother. Um, do not dress in bright colors. Do not dye your hair. And do not wear any dress more than two inches above your ankle. That hot ankle action. Mm -hmm. Which, this is also post numerous periods. So women's dress has been challenged for, I want to say, 40 years, 50 years at this point, and still we are seeing dress codes and dress restrictions that are excessive and a bit insane. Right. So, I finally, after saying we're going to get to World War One, but finally get to World War One, and kind of the uh, effects of that, because I... I feel like World War One is one of those things that really kicked off um, a lot of, a lot of policies and pretty modern American policies. Yeah, yeah. Going into World War One, we have a moderate amount of anti-war sentiment that is being espoused by the IWW primarily, though other unions and organizations are pushing this as well, but. Uh, a large amount of pro-war sentiment is uh, created by the government as well as the newspapers at the time. Now, we still didn't join the war initially until, I believe it was the, was it the main? Or, no, the main was the precursor for the Cuban War, again, the Spanish-American War. Was it Tonkin? Yeah. No, Tonkin was Vietnam. Uh, this was, I think, the Lusitania. Yeah. There we go. We, <laughs> we lost Sick 14. Ships. We lost 12 or like 14, 24 people, I think, and everyone else. I thought it was 124. Oh, 124, and there was like 500 of everybody else. Like, yeah. It was a very, yeah. That. Yeah. Um, we were definitely carrying munitions. Yes. It was actually pretty much the, we tried to pass out like, this team was a cruise ship. Wow, they attacked an innocent pleasure cruise. And then it was like, no, they were, the Germany actually had, a, a, it was a, military uh, asset that could be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so this got us into the war, and while we don't in, in this chapter really talk about what the war was like from an American perspective, it's more generally talked about the 
numbers of people who are lost and the way that the governments participating in this war uh, deal with that. And so from page 360, we have um, a discussion regarding the battle lines between France and Germany. For three years, the battle lines remained virtually stationary in France. Each side would push forward, then back, then forward again. For a few yards, a few miles, while the corpses piled up. In 1916, the Germans tried to break through at Verdun. The British and French counterattacked along the Seine, moving forward a few miles and lost 600,000 men. One day, the 9th Battalion of the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry launched an attack with 800 men. 24 hours later, there were 84 left. Back home, the British were not told of the slaughter. One rider recalled, the most bloody defeat in the history of Britain might occur, and our press would come out bland and copious and graphic, but nothing showed that we had had not quite a good day at all, a victory really. The same thing was happening on the German side, as Eric Maria Remarque wrote in, wrote in his great novel, one day uh, men were being blown apart by machine guns and shells, and the official dispatches would announce all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, so if you've ever studied World War One, and I took a class in college, it was definitely, not like I'm an expert, but it was definitely... Angela is an expert oh in World War One. No, I'm not. Um, so... Everything Angela says she's not an expert in, she's an expert in. Yeah. Uh, the main part was that it compared to the other wars is that most wars are pretty heroic, like they got romanticized for a lot of these European nations. So they're like, okay, you know, we're off to war. They are also generally, until this point, not constant right. bloodletting, not constant castings. You spend a lot of time marching from place to place, shitting yourself along the way. Uh, you might get shot at. You'll do some more shitting. Yeah, it's and also uh, with the European, they have like, oh, we have knights. Like, it was very kind of like, okay, it's it's been a while, we've had peace, and now it's time to go off to war. It's going to be great. I'm going to get a heroic, like, little pen. It's going to be awesome. And they're like, yeah, we have machine guns, motherfucker. And that just all goes to shit. Yep. Yep. Trench warfare was a nightmare. Compare and this is considering that war previously was already a nightmare. Right. I, um, going back to the Civil War, I know of um, part of the medicine for the Civil War was just give them opium or cut it off. And uh, someone on a battlefield had their left bicep blown open by a small cannonball. So there was a fist-sized hole that you could put through their arm. And the solution to this was to slather the wound in opium. So there were nightmarish events going on in previous wars, but this was something to the scale that is not really conceivable. Like, it, it, as the quote goes, uh, one death is an injustice, a million is a statistic. Right. So, the United States at this point was like, uh, as on page 363, uh, Du Bois saw the ingenuity of capitalism, the United States exploited and exploited, 
creating a safety valve for explosive class conflict. So essentially, uh, as I said earlier, channeling this energy to something else. And if you can unite a bunch of folks against an enemy, then you can kind of do whatever the fuck you want. Or continue to do whatever the fuck you want. Domestically. Right. And um, it was during this period in, in World War One that we begin to see a little bit of the steam of the labor movement, as rightly noted, get cooled off. Now, there there are still strikes during this period. Um, yeah, a lot there of are folks, still agitations. Right, and at this point, a lot of folks are in jail. Like, their leaders are in jail, they've gotten broken up, and most times they gave a little bit enough concessions to get people kind of back off. Mm-hmm. Though the majority of the time these concessions are from the industries themselves rather than from the state at this point. So there isn't a uniformity to the concessions, there isn't a regularity to what is expected. And coming out of World War One, where while it was started as something that was based on alliances, there, there were a lot of economics involved as well. Um, prior to World War One, we were in a little bit of a economic slump right. um, through the 1890s, and we have had constant booms and busts in the United States because we've had, essentially, till this point, uh, naked capitalism. You could kill your competitors, you could blow up their stuff. And very little recourse would come for the the owners of these companies. And so because of that, we see periodic depressions and recessions that are the impetus for these these strikes, uh, along with the conditions in which these people are working. But going into World War I, there was a lot of excitement from the business class regarding this war because since the Spanish-American War, we haven't had a reason to really sell as much stuff. I mean, we've had domestic markets, but we haven't had the, the need for millions of bullets and food and uniforms and whatnot. So as far as the capitalist class was concerned, the World War One was uh, an amazing time. Right. So essentially, uh, there's a lot of uh, arrests, because of draft dogging, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of folks were accused of being like socialists and going to jail. They may have been socialists. They probably were socialists, but because that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So there was um, that, and then going to kind of towards the end of the war was kind of the start of like the Great Depression in terms of there was essentially. And so, getting into the post-war period, we see, well, of course, businesses are booming through the war because they're selling things, coming out of the war. Uh, the United States is pretty much untouched. This is something that repeats itself in World War II to greater effect. Uh, and in 1923, we have uh, presidencies of Harding and Coolidge and, well, not in 1923, both were president. doesn't work that way. But um, 
Irwin's Coolidge at the time, who had Andrew Mellon, one of the richest men in America, as his Secretary of the Treasury. Actually, Mellon was the Secretary of the Treasury for both of them, so it's fair to put it for both Harding and Coolidge. But um, in 1923, Congress passed, passed something called the Mellon Plan, which was a sharp cut to income taxes, which, if I'm remembering correctly, income taxes had only existed for 20 or 30 years at this point. And the tax rates for the rich would go from 50% to 25%, and the tax rates for the poor would go from 4% to 3%. So one thing to note is that we're not getting an even cut. The poor are statistically paying more post-tax than the rich are paying post-tax cut because we're going, we've got a 50% reduction in rate for the rich versus a 25% reduction in rate for the poor. And then the post-war, we are, we're seeing companies making more and more while paying less and less. And so much of the United States budget previously that was caught up in war efforts now necessarily isn't. This is still po like pre-military industrial complex. Like we've used wars to pull us out of recessions, but we don't keep it going. Right. And so a lot of this money then is just really going back to these companies who are doing gangbusters at the time. And it's entirely government sanctioned. Yeah, so essentially the great economy crashes and this is due to, as uh, John Galbraith says, or he points out that due to very unhealthy corporate and banking structures and unsound foreign trade, much economic misinformation and bad distribution of income. So on top of this, you have people like Henry Ford who said, uh, we in America today are near to the final triumph over poverty than every than ever before in history of any land. And this is post crash. Uh, he said this, yeah, as the crisis was here, um, because the average man won't really do a day's work unless he is caught and cannot get out of it. There is plenty of work to do if people would do it, and then he lays off a bunch of people. What was it, 75,000? 75,000, yeah, a few weeks later. Reminder that Henry Ford uh, spread the Protocols of the Elders of Zion through his personal uh, company newspaper. Uh, for those unfamiliar, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is the beginnings of modern-day anti-Semitic thought and conspiracy theory coming out of uh, pre-revolutionary czarist Russia as a means of demonizing Jewish people. So... Uh, not only bad for the economy, uh, Ford was bad all around. Yes. I dodge. No, don't <laughs> I dodge. Don't. Don't. Buy, buy a car if you want, or bike if you can. Or buy vehicles off of Craigslist if you're going to buy a vehicle. Fair enough. Do yes. not pay direct amounts to uh, direct producers. So, pretty much this kind of, uh, you might have something, this kind of rolls into like the New Deal, right, with Roosevelt uh, getting elected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the thing that I wanted to bring up from this period of time, 
because one was Roosevelt elected uh, 32, 31? 32, yeah. Okay. In 34 and 35, um, and keep in mind, there are strikes going on all the time during this period. The Bonus Army has marched and demanded their uh, pensions be paid in full, if I'm remembering correctly, yes. for World War One. Yes, they were going to get their pensions like 14 years later or some ridiculous amount, and if you kind of consider life expectancy at that time, probably we're never going to see that money. Especially as a uh, war veteran, especially during the Great Depression, when food is tight, when money is incredibly tight. Yeah. And as a part of putting down the Bonus Army, we see a, a young George MacArthur. Was it George MacArthur? MacArthur. I don't remember his first name. Um, being a part of the unit that attacks veterans who are requesting the things that they were promised. Right. And, like, they, of course, brought their families with them because otherwise they can't leave them there. Mm -hmm. so they burned down, like, their tents and everything. Some families, like, innocent children were killed. And it was pretty bad, but I don't... Uh, the book doesn't really say anything about anybody saying anything or any newspapers writing about it, essentially. So the American public had probably no idea that this even happened. If it did get reported, it was probably a story and not a week-long scandal right. with investigations. Right. But um, going into 1934 and 1935, we see the creation of the sit-down strike. And what the sit-down strike was, and it is now very legal, illegal, my apologies, is rather than walk out of the factory and strike outside, you occupy the space in which the work takes place. You are seizing the direct means of production and refusing to allow anyone else to use that means of production. And these strikes were incredibly efficient at getting what the strikers wanted, because unlike with prior strikes where you could try and bring strike breakers in, and if you succeeded in getting the strike breakers in, work continued, um, you had no recourse. The people were there, more often than not, nearby businesses would organize with them to supply meals and to supply support so that people could leave their their position, leave their, their place of the line, the place in the factory to, to use the bathroom or to sleep so that these continued 24 hours a day and resulted in corporations caving in days rather than weeks or months. Right. And also in 1938, there was the establishment of the 40-hour work week and the minimum wage, which kind of gutted some of the union, right? Because now you're like, well, things are better than before. I don't see a reason why being part of the union, even though you probably are still, yeah, okay, so work 40 hours, you can probably still work 60 hours and still not get paid for those 20 hours or whatever. Mm -hmm. So... They essentially had to kind of reorganize around just being better, um, so being better paid because I think then minimum wage still was not enough to cover living in like uh, like 
feeding your family and other things like that. Still in uh, heavy depression at this point. Um, and a thing to point out with the unions is that through in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, unions were for the most part outside of the structures of electoralism, outside of the structures of capitalism, and they were directly opposed to both. But as these, the period of the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s went on, uh, the AFL and many other unions ended up being captured as part of electoralism and capitalism, uh, which is part of why the IWW sprang up to begin with, because the AFL-1 was not uh, representing non-skilled labor. They, they only really represented factory workers of various stripes. And so, um, but two, they also, more often than not, pushed caution versus striking um, in the favor of the, the corporations. Um, and one of the anecdotes that is mentioned in the book is of one of the AFL leaders going on vacation to some I think it's a golf resort in New Jersey with some uh, business leaders and uh, pulling off hundreds to tip like the caddies and the people working the course. So it, very quickly the union movement sort of got captured and in some ways neutered by the capitalist class during this period. Yeah. And so... The New Deal was in effect, but the thing is that this was a temporary thing. It only benefited some, like, uh, certain class of workers. And some parts that were effective were struck down. Right. Like the NRA, which I cannot remember what the, that stands for, but it is not the National Rifle Association, I can promise you that. And this also New Deal definitely did not help black people at all, in which, so essentially, um, this left out a huge, even though, like, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt was sympathetic, still kind of ignored them at the, the same time. And the reason being is that Roosevelt didn't want to, like, piss off the Southern, uh, Democrats and who pretty much controlled the South. And... Um, As with all change, it was incremental to release the steam, not take the pot off of oil. Right, and he didn't address, like, lynching that was going on, or, like, pervasive. So, this kind of rolls in to the start of World War II. And this also takes more of the, the issues with, like, the unions kind of, like, out. Because there's a shit ton more jobs now. They're all probably paying... Well, the wages are controlled by the government at this point, so people are like, okay, this is pretty good, right? I'm getting constant work. The, I'm contributing to my country. So now the IWW is like, well, fuck. <laughs> There's only so much you can do. And also, with the start of World War II, like, kind of moral reason to go into it, 
right? Because there's this uh, regime that's suppressing or oppressing minorities. Granted, which we didn't know too much about at the beginning. Of, well, the public didn't. Right. And then I guess like once they finally found like, the first initial concentration camp. Uh, that was in like 1944. 1944? Oh shit. Yeah, okay. it's real late into the war. It's at mm. concentration camps we had. So, I guess like, to me that this is framed a bit in the book, to me, was that there was, most people kind of got into the war after... It was definitely more of a moral imperative versus World War One. Yeah. So, okay. I was wrong there. Well, no, no. I, it's just like... So much of what was going on in World War II was not made clear, and there was also a good amount of anti-Semitism in the United States during that time. We come up to the, um, I think in 1940, perhaps 1941, there was a boat of uh, German-Jewish uh, peoples trying to uh, find refugee status in the United States, and they were turned away. And they died, and they couldn't have. Yeah. There was the possibility that they could have not died. Right. So, we got attacked, Pearl Harbor, other yep. fun, but that was the... Because initially, we weren't going to do anything in Japan. Like, it was just like... We weren't going to join the war. Yeah. Japan was over there, like, that's cool, and that's a, probably a new market that will eventually... Look to and something that isn't mentioned but is brought up is that we forced open Japan. Yes, and a lot of uh, Asian markets in the 1880s, 1890s, and 1910s. So on page uh, 408, it mentions in short that the entrance of the United States into World War II was and soon as so many Americans believed at the time, observing the Nazi invasions to defend the principles of non-intervention in the affairs of other countries, the nation's record cast out on its ability to uphold that principle. So, I like, to me it seems like they're like, oh, Germany invaded, um... Poland and Poland, Russia. Yeah, so that's that's the reason why we got in the war. And, like, I know there's probably alliances and blah, blah, blah. And actually, I don't think, yeah, we didn't even have we weren't. We didn't get in the war yet for that purpose. We were still supporting the war effort through economic trade. Though we had corporations playing both sides. We had IBM. We had Coca-Cola. Uh, we had Ford. Who Ford, if I remember correctly, during the 30s got some sort of award from Hitler's regime. That wouldn't surprise me at all. So, not a good time. Right. We uh, sat on uh, doing the right thing for the longest time until we had a clear reason. And as the book points out, we sort of knew that a Japanese attack was probably coming. Yeah. Much like 9-11. Yeah, because like, we actually had like a boat out near there, kind of antagonizing, um, I want to say China, but their boat was there, and it was kind of like, well, they might attack us, because we're showing aggression, we're, you know, mm -hmm. we're apparently showing aggression, so, and yeah, it was coming, probably just let it happen, 
So that could be debated. Regardless, sorry in World War Two. That's from the war. Jobs are here. Mm. Everyone's just making bullets and other bullshit. Manhattan Project has been going on for a bit. Mm-hmm. Things have been kind of booming for the military industrial complex. Like, that's yeah. kind of being built up. Which so many people consider the military industrial complex to just be weapons manufacturers, but military industrial complex at this time also definitely includes uh, clothing manufacturers, people making food, people making uh, general machinery that can be sent over. Um, is, unfortunately, war is a boom to a capitalist economy right. across the board generally. Yeah. And so during this time, we also had, since we were in Japan, we had internment camps for the Japanese. However, we had pretty much like a summer camp for the Germans mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And we kind of let them come and go in the camp yeah. or whatever. My grandfather was a card carrying Nazi. I got thrown out of the. No, not my grandfather, my grandfather's grandfather. Okay. No, my grandfather's father. Yeah, this card-carrying Nazi that got thrown out of the United States at this time uh, for being a card-carrying Nazi, a member of the American Nazi Party. Um, so because of that, my grandfather has uh, extra siblings that he otherwise would not have. Oh, my. Because uh, my great-grandfather went back to Germany and had another family. As you do. Yeah, I mean, why stop fucking? Yeah. She was like, well, I got thrown out, and I'm not probably going to ever see my kids again, so got to make, you know, lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a um, section from page 412 that uh, discusses, in 1942, Roosevelt and the situation in the South Pacific. So this is... Um, post joining the war, if I remember correctly, unless did we join in forty three? Pretty sure was Mulad. Uh, We're awesome historians. Mm, as we said at the beginning, we are not historians. I told them that I'm a historian, so uh, Angela's a historian. Uh, pretty sure we joined in thirty nine. Didn't the war start in thirty nine? Oh shit, you're right. Forty two. We, we were bombed by... Pearl Harbor was 41, I think. Okay. Well, that sometime... Uh, yeah. We just so, late 1942, Roosevelt's personal representative assured French General Henry Garrard... Garrard? Henry. It is thoroughly understood that French sovereignty will be reestablished as soon as possible throughout all the territory metropolitan or colonial, over which flew the French flag in 1939. These pages, like the others in the Pentagon Papers, are marked top-secret, sensitive. By 1945, the ambivalent attitude was gone. In May, Truman assured the French he did not question their sovereignty over Indochina. So this was uh, something we haven't clearly mentioned prior, is that around this period of time, the United States made a declaration that it would see all sovereign states and sovereign and any other peoples as sovereign and that we wouldn't interfere in other people's business which if you know anything about the history of the United States 
if you've been listening so far, uh, we're not going to stick to that. And we didn't. Nope. So, um, we, um, as a part of our war effort in the Pacific, were both looking to repel the Japanese as well as secure our own foothold in further in the South Pacific. Right. And as we kind of come towards the end of the war a little bit, we start cutting up like territory, essentially. Uh, as so, we see in the Middle East. Right. So thing with you know South and North Korea, we kind of were like, here's a spot, that's where the line, that's where the border is. Nothing historical just talked about is this done. And I know you want to talk about the Smith Act before I do want to talk about the Smith Act. So the Smith Act was uh, a piece of legislation that so as we see on page 420 uh, the Smith Act was passed and was an extension of the Espionage Act of 1917 and it took the Espionage Act's prohibitions against talk or writing that would lead to refusal of duty in the armed forces and applied them to peacetime and then this as an extension became a way of criminalizing dissent against the United Governments even further than the Sedition Act did. Um, it was used against a number of socialists and anarchists and organizers who were trying to tell people that they're being fooled, tell right. people that the United States government is not doing this for noble causes, that um, while as a result uh, we might stop some persecution, uh, well, might stop a lot of persecution in the case of World War II. Um, the, the purpose was not, first and foremost, the stopping of persecution, but the securing of uh, capital's right to have a sphere of influence over these areas. Right. So, a lot of folks got jailed, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think this got gone to the Supreme Court bunch of times. Bunch it was times. heavily used in the post-war period, in the period of like 48, 49, 50, through 56, 57. Um, hasn't really been used much since, but technically the threat is always there. Right. And on top of the army in World War II, or like our own troops, they were segregated and a lot of the black servicemen were essentially mess cooks or cooks, kind of quote unquote the lower uh, service, service roles. roles, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of built resentment. I think there was a couple of uh, not strikes, but some like writings about how you know they get to be like spat on about their role. You know, we're supposed to be fighting this war together, or they're supposed to be united against this war. And from there, I have a section on Greece post war. Uh, Greece had been a right wing monarchy and dictatorship before the war, and a popular left wing National Liberation Front, the EAM, was put down by a British Army 
immediately after the war, and a right-wing dictatorship was restored um, by the British Army. So, you know, fight the fascists, but then post-war instill the fascists. And when opponents of the regime were jailed, trade union leaders were moved, a left-wing guerrilla movement uh, grew against the regime, eventually containing 17,000 fighters, 50,000 50, active supporters, and 250,000 sympathizers in a country of 7 million, uh, which eventually led to the United States uh, helping the uh, far-right government with money and military aid to put down the leftist insurrection against a, a right dictatorship. Right. So, since the end of the war, uh, as I said earlier, it came down to cutting, like, dividing up who gets to control what. Mm -hmm. And this was also not just the United States, it was also uh, Soviet Union, mm -hmm. as they kind of installed their own folks who mm -hmm. were sympathetic, and essentially jailed or just killed anybody who wanted, like, independence. Uh, but this, also was, this is also during a time, too, where a lot of different countries that were under different colonialist rule were like, oh, okay, this is the opportunity to become independent. Like, if we're fighting for sovereignty within Europe, we should be able to fight for our own sovereignty, and that just did not happen. Until, like, did not happen until, like, almost 20 years, 30 years later. Yep. And, um, Something to point out regarding the spheres of influence is that as part of the end of World War II, there was some evidence, or there is some evidence, that the United States government knew that the Japanese government was willing to, willing to surrender with conditions. Right. And we requested unconditional surrender, which... I don't, I don't know that it was the right thing to do. I'm sure the listeners that we have, all of you out there, all hundreds of millions of you, um, will agree that that was not the right thing to do. But uh, as a part of forcing the unconditional surrender that we wanted, uh, and Japan was unwilling to get us, despite willing to be willing to surrender, just with conditions primary being that they keep their emperor. Well, we dropped two nuclear bombs on a country, and this is the only time that another country, one country bombed another with nuclear bombs so far. So far. Yeah. And it certainly could have been avoided. We didn't need to do a land war on Japan to achieve victory, but instead we want an unconditional victory. So, essentially after that, we just roll right into another war, the Korean War. Good times. And... Not really. So, in the North and South Korea, divided on the 38th parallel, and... 38? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, us freedom fighter dudes and the evil Soviet Empire, and yep, that happened. And honestly, just nothing came out of it 
odd way. It only came out of this, like, a lot of, like, servicemen got real messed up. Yes, uh, I mean. <laughs> we firebombed the ever-loving crap out of North Korea to the point where, uh, at a certain point, pilots did not have things to target. Because the majority of the targets are based off of where are lights. And at a certain point, there was no more electricity because we had destroyed so much of what was North Korea. But something else to recognize is that prior to our intervention, North Korea almost captured all of Korea. Okay, so this was kind of the start of the, oh fuck, uh, we don't want communism to spread. Yes. We need to battle back against it because it's evil. And also, oh, fuck, we need to have a constant war because otherwise people will kind of look around and see that we're mm -hmm. fucking awful. Mm -hmm. And as I'm going to shout out yet another podcast, um, the Trilby Worker... No, this is Grub Stakers, not the Trilby Workers Party. Grub Stakers and talking about the military-industrial complex. Uh, this was the period where the military-industrial complex really came into its own as a thing. Um, despite talking down about it, Eisenhower definitely was part of enabling it, so uh, he doesn't get a pass. Um, but the uh, desire to constantly spend on the military was a um, an escape valve for evening out the economy. Right. Because you have two major ways in which the government can spend money. One is through social programs, and the other is through the military. And with social programs, people have a greater say in how the money is used, and uh, how the money is spent. Um, Whereas with the military, there is no civilian intervention in that, so it's entirely a negotiation between the government and the government. Right. Um, so this was a way for uh, government spending on the levels of the New Deal to continue without necessarily frustrating or angering the capitalist class. Right. And... And so, yeah, the Korean War lasted for, I think, two years? I think it might have been three. Three years. Like 50 to 53. So... 49 to 53, something like that. Right. So then, now I have a new enemy. It's not Hitler, it's communism. And McCarthy started ramping up his, you know, propaganda... And the uh, inspections of all those government workers. Right. Uh, there was a, a it was a case in here in which they, the Rosenbergs were just a couple that had nothing to do with Russia or anything, and they got accused by their neighbor or a few different people were state witnesses that ended up cooperating with each other in jail? Right, yes. And one of them was just a known liar, like a very... Claimed to have a fake family, family. for 16 years. And, but well, 
the prosecutor in a different case brings it up and says, so you claim to have a fake family for six years, and Gold responds, well, actually it was 16. So, no liar. Yes. And they eventually get prosecuted and were eventually executed. So that that's a good start of, you know, the 50s. And during this time, there is a lot of similar prosecutions of socialists and organizers under the Smith Act um, as a part of McCarthyism. There's a couple hundred thousand government workers who are investigated as a part of this against their rights to privacy, and nothing really comes of those investigations. And um, on page 450... I have a section regarding the post-war experience in uh, the black community. And in 1954, the courts finally struck down separate but equal, a doctrine that had been defended since the 1890s. The NAACP brought a series of cases before the courts challenged segregation in public schools, and Brown versus Board of Education resulted in the court saying that the separation of school children generates a feeling of inferiority that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlike ever to be undone. The doctrine of separate but equal has no place, was the ruling. Now, this wasn't an immediate change, and took somewhere around anywhere from uh, a decade to two or three decades if... Um, Kamala Harris's experience in the 1980s being uh, finally bust to other schools uh, is an example of integration still not happening for 30 years. So while on paper, while on paper, 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 uh, the courts were doing things uh, socially for minorities in the United States. The institutions in which the, these people existed resisted for decades to afford uh, those changes. And the thing is, is that there was a lot of violence occurring against the black community that had no answer from the national government, which really obviously pissed off a lot of folks. And so we have essentially a new crisis brewing in which there's a huge contingent of black people who have are right, you know, marching, um, having sit-ins, doing civil disobedience occurring all over the country. And there's also been some like white folks like in different colleges and stuff that will try to do their freedom uh, freedom, freedom, rights. freedom rights and they would get brutally attacked like even a boss got caught, like set on fire and so Often wouldn't get to complete the rights they would be sent back across state lines yeah like uh, I think there's a point that Johnson said yeah you they can get there but like you, it's okay for you to put them in jail like that's an okay thing to do and it's just like what the fuck and yeah, I mean, I think the United was, States would like securing the right to interstate travel for decades at this point on paper. 
Right. But never enforcing it. So, essentially, what was interesting is that, and this is kind of where a schism kind of occurs, is uh, when Kennedy met the like coalition that came in, and he pretty much did, so everyone's like already upset, he kind of meets them, and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, like we're cool, we're gonna like work together, he kind of placates them, this is what makes Malcolm X like, what the fuck, like we, we need to keep angry, like we can't accept the like, you know, paternalism from the state apparatus in order to... It's just another way to take the pot off of the boil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, as this is occurring, there's also the Vietnam War going on, and that has started ratcheting up, especially as more photographs from the front came through, because initially, you know, World War II was very framed as heroic. They're, you know, you're going against the Nazis or against democracy, and now you're in Vietnam, and you have these guerrilla fighters who are pretty much, they're all, like, it's a big uh, communal type thing. A lot of folks are, like, high morale. Oh, yeah. they, like, incredibly high morale. Yeah. And so, you know, they kill a lot of them, and then they're like, all right, you know, we're coming right back in. Yeah. And... The thing to keep in mind with the Vietnam War is that for the United States, the Vietnam War started in the mid-60s. For the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War had been on since 1945. Right. Because it was pretty much the... Uh, Resistance to French yeah, post-World War II. Right. So, essentially, they... The, yeah, uh, the United States was providing support for the French, and the French were like... Yo, we need more troops and more guns. You guys need to come here to do this. And I, I think the French and the uh, ruler at the time. Um, I what it's, uh, I think his name was. DM uh, was who the United States put into place. I don't remember the name of the ruler that the French had. But regardless, he they were just kind of like, okay, you guys need to get involved more. So we're like, okay, well. We'll do this. We'll we'll be some good interest of this. Uh, Vietnam is very has you know it's very lush. There's a good economic part of like going into this because if they rule, then they can get all the resources and set up timber, rubber, right? So they get started in there. They get roped. Not I'm gonna roped in. That sounds like they got tricked, but you know they go in knowingly, and then things just start going to shit. And as things kind of got worse, there was more pictures and things being released. And there was times of a thing called fragging, where they troops would, if they were going to be ordered to fight, they would go and kill their officers by running a grenade under their like place of sleeping. Oh, so that's where fragging comes yeah. from. So like there was so much dissent within the army, like people just straight up left, and, like, in Vietnam, and a lot of rebels were like, or the opposition force or whatever, they're like, alright, you know, you guys can hang with us, it's fine. Um, you know, so, it was, uh, like, a lot of dissent at home, dissent abroad, and it was an unpopular war, 
there's also the civil rights going on. So they kind of had to sort of pick and choose, all right, we're in this war, we're making money, I guess we'll give the blacks rights. You know, it's kind of like, eh, and we'll have to This is it. another way to take the pot off the boil. Right. Because the thing is, it's like, yeah, you, they can say, yeah, you got rights, but that doesn't mean they enforce them. And they never, they don't really fucking did. Like, it took several fucking decades before things actually got to slightly being okay. Yep. And, um, Something to keep in mind regarding the Vietnam War is so much of the coverage that we experience today of Vietnam, so divorced from when it occurred, was or is um, reminders of prisoners of war from the Vietnam War. The, uh, the modern image of Vietnam is the Vietnam veteran, or someone say like, uh, what's his name, uh, Senator died John McCain. Right. Right. Um, talking about going to uh, Hanoi Hilton. Um, and with respect to that, we had prison camps in Vietnam that we helped to supervise that housed 60 to 70,000 people uh, at their peaks were essentially torture camps. And on top of that, um, as a part of the book, it discusses um, the My Lai Massacre and how what is described as being the My Lai Massacre is uh, a small squadron dragging something like 150 to 200 people to um, pits that they had forced the people to dig and then uh, pushing them into the pits and then shooting them and then pushing more of them in and then shooting them. Uh, it's essentially, it, it's a massacre. Um, and from one person's perspective on it, it's not that the My Lai Massacre was an outlier, but almost every squadron as a part of the Vietnam War had a My Lai Massacre. Right. And, oh, right, right. Also, another reason to go into the war was because of the Tonkin, which can be disputed as mm -hmm. kind of... Was U.S. staged? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the only uh, ship sinking that has been mentioned so far, because we mentioned the Maine, we mentioned the Louis, uh, Lusitania, and we mentioned the Gulf of Tonkin, which was the Maddox, if I remember correctly. Um, only the Maine... Uh, was most likely benign, and that's because the particular kind of coal that the Maine was using uh, when it was parked outside of Cuba was a coal that was likely to self-ignite, and so it, it is supposed or afford that the Maine caught itself on fire, whereas Lusitania. Uh, we were transporting munitions as a part of a war effort against another country, and it so was a legitimate target, but we painted it as it was not. And the Maddox, we uh, self-sabotaged by going into waters that we claimed were neutral, but were clearly not. Yeah. So, as the war continues on, uh, people are like getting arrested, and what was interesting is that a lot of 
juries became more sympathetic to um, these cases. So they didn't actually like uh, sentence or make them guilty or whatever. And so uh, we'll take a quick break and kind of go towards the end of the book. Um, I do have a couple more things. Okay. Um, so on that, uh, the sympathetic juries, there was a lot of draft dodging, a lot of refusing to go even once drafted, and then uh, there was something that is near and dear to our hearts, um, the, the anti-war movement of uh, some Catholic priests. And... Um, some had been roused by the civil rights movement, others had been roused by their experiences in Latin America where they saw in poverty and uh, poverty and injustice under government supported by the United States. In 67, Father Berrigan, a justified priest who was a veteran of World War II, joined with a few other friends, went to an, a draft board office in Baltimore, Maryland, drenched the draft record in blood, and waited to be arrested. They were put on trial and sentenced for two to six years. Then, the next year, while on bail, in May, Berrigan met with his brother, who had been to North Vietnam and seen the effects of the uh, U.S. war, and seven others, and they went to a draft board office in Cadenceville, Maryland, removed records, and set them afire uh, in the presence of reporters and onlookers. And they were convicted and sentenced to prison for this as the Catonsville Nine. Berrigan uh, then went on to skip bail and disappeared throughout the country, uh, showing up in various places for four months until he was eventually captured. Another member of the Catonsville Nine, uh, one of the two women that participated, um, the book cites that she was the only woman, but I watched footage from the burning last night, because it's available on YouTube. There were two women who participated. Obviously, we have to throw out this book. There's some inaccuracies. Yep. Still it all out. It's gone. But um, one of the women from the Cadenceville Nine, Mary Marlin, a former nun, refused to surrender to the FBI and went underground and was never found. I think that's very interesting that these priests and nuns just disappeared. Thinking this was easier back then, you know. Oh um, yeah, especially as part of the uh, religious apparatus, uh, you could throw on a habit or throw on a frock and just go to a, a different parish and disappear. Yeah. So, uh, post-Vietnam, we're going to break and cover the rest of this next time, or are we going to cover this and then do the criticism next time? We should totally cover the rest and then do the criticism. Okay. Well, let's pause. <laughs>